Hello and welcome to this, our final talk in our series on life in the spirit based in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Today we reach the end of the letter, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be starting from verse 10 through to the end of the letter. And the title, uh, Following Christ, engages us in spiritual warfare. And I want to start right up front by acknowledging that there is a phrase in that title that might put some people off, and that phrase is spiritual warfare. Or it might cause you to think, actually, this talk really isn't for me. It's for other people. And if that is you, I totally get that. But can I just ask you to maybe keep your finger away from the stop button just for a few more minutes while I explain why I think that that isn't the case, why this talk is actually for everybody. Now, the truth is that this final section of Ephesians is sometimes treated rather differently from the rest of the letter because it is about spiritual warfare. It's about a fight with powers and authorities. We'll go into all of that. And that can sometimes feel like it's a special sort of teaching um, that should be separated out, maybe. Um, we may feel it's a bit scary, or it's just for people who've got a particular interest in that sort of thing, or a particular ministry in that area, and so on. But that doesn't really make sense, does it? For there to be a disconnect between this passage and the rest of the letter. This is the conclusion to a letter. Now we've already looked in previous weeks, indeed this slide is from my talk in week one, we've looked at how the letter basically splits into two main sections and it's been mentioned on more than one occasion as we've gone through. In the first section, Paul shows us all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, all that only he could do. <clears throat> the amazing position that we have seated in heavenly places with him, the fact that his almighty power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, now flows through us. It's amazing, mind-blowing truth. At the end of chapter 3, as we reach the summit of the mountain, as Anthea so wonderfully put it a few weeks ago. Paul prays for our hearts to be enlightened, to understand the full extent of God's love and grace towards us. And then, at the start of chapter 4, Paul explains that there is a therefore, he actually uses that word, in the light of God's amazing mercy to us, there are ways that we should live in the Spirit. And so, through chapters 4 and 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6, we get some very practical teaching about our lifestyle, particularly our relationships, and so on, all to be led by the Spirit. And all of this leads us up to verse 10 of chapter 6, where we start today. My question is quite simply this, does it make sense that at this point 
in a letter. Paul would suddenly take a sharp right angle turn and go off in a completely different esoteric direction. I don't think that makes sense. And Paul himself makes it clear, I think, that there is a flow. He starts this section by saying, finally. And that, to me, implies that it's continuing. I've said this, and I've said this, and I've said this, and now finally I'm going to say this. It's almost like he's saying, I think anyway, to sum up, beloved. So to go back to my question, is there a disconnect? Is this section just for a special few, or is it part of the letter's flow? And I think that for Paul, everything that's covered in verse 10 through 20, 23, 24, is as cosmic and mind-blowing as everything in the first three chapters. But it's also as importantly real and practical as everything that has come from chapter four onwards up to this point. And it all must be based on the same truth of all that God has done for each and every one of us in Jesus. So what is Paul saying here really about our life in the spirit when it comes to dealing in our everyday life with opposition that comes our way? In, the, in that life, and indeed the source of that opposition. And how about this phrase, spiritual warfare? Because there is a fundamental premise to this term, and that is that it presupposes some kind of spiritual entities that are in some way at war with us. And that might offend our contemporary modern mindset. Isn't that just superstition that we've grown out of? Ah, well, <clears throat> that is a question explored at length in this excellent book by Greg Boyd, God at War, The Bible and Spiritual Conflict. And he goes into all of this at some length, as you can tell by the size of the book. Um, but don't be put off. Uh, if you do want to look into this more, I really would recommend the book. It's very clearly written. Um, he's just very comprehensive in how he approaches things. Uh, near the beginning of the book, Greg goes through example after example after example of different cultures from different times all around the world, all of whom take as read that some kind of spiritual forces exist that, they, that are at war with us. This warfare, spiritual warfare construct is taken as read for them. And at the end of going through all of these examples, uh, he says this, now, the very prevalence of the warfare worldview among so many different people groups in such radically different times and unrelated locations should itself be enough to inspire us to take this worldview seriously. If we modern Westerners cannot see what nearly everyone else 
outside the little oasis of Western rationalism the last several centuries has seen, then perhaps there is something amiss in our way of seeing. It is just possible that the intensely materialistic and rationalistic orientation of the Enlightenment has blinded us to certain otherwise obvious realities. It is just possible that our chronocentrism, our tendencies to assume that the worldview we hold at the present time is the ultimately true worldview, is preventing us from seeing significant features of reality. So it is that premise that this stuff is real that I'm going to assume for the rest of this talk. So, having given all of that as an introduction, I'd like to explore this thought under, you will be shocked to know, three main headings, starting with the location of the war. Where is this fight happening? Is it somewhere over there? Is the battle happening somewhere over there that we're disconnected from unless we've got a particular interest? And indeed, is it somehow in uh, the, the opposite to everything we've been hearing about the blessings, the stuff we've been hearing in previous chapters. I mean, to caricature things slightly, aren't we supposed to be sitting on a cloud somewhere in heavenly places, right? <clears throat> Enjoying perfect bliss with Jesus. And if that is the case, why doesn't it seem like that for so much of the time? Or is it just me? How are we getting it so very wrong? In understanding this, <clears throat> I think it's really important to pay attention to a particular phrase that Paul uses on a number of occasions in this letter. Uh, and um, a focus on this phrase is something I really want to acknowledge my debt to Nigel Rivers, who gave a talk on this many years ago. And I have to confess, I cannot remember much of that talk, but I do remember Nigel pointing out this phrase and its importance. And the phrase in Greek, forgive my pronunciation, is entois eporanios, in heavenly places. So how does Paul use this phrase and why is it important? Because it's a phrase that, as we go through the letter, talks about a new location <coughs> for us, a new perspective and a new awareness that is relevant for what we're talking about here. So back in chapter one, we are told that through the Holy Spirit's power, which is a foretaste of our inheritance, we see or we can see all that God has done for us by his mighty power. The blessings we have received, here's the phrase, en tois eporanios, in heavenly places. That's Ephesians 1 verse 3. And so our perspective 
is raised up so that we sit with Christ and toi separanios in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, verse 6. <clears throat> that is our position. And from this place, we are equipped to be God's church. Rooted and grounded in our everyday existence with its relational challenges and struggles, but at the same time, demonstrating God's multi, multi-faceted wisdom to powers and toy separanios, to powers in heavenly places. That's in Ephesians 3, verse 10. Somehow, what we are here, the church, demonstrates, shows something to spiritual forces. And it is in this place of victory and new perspective, N. Eperanios, actually he misses out the toys on this occasion, in the heavenlies, in heavenly places, that we also engage in the battle with these powers and authorities that would, or the ones that would set themselves somehow against the will and the kingdom of God. Ephesians 6 verse 12. The battle that is talked about in Ephesians 6 takes place in tois eperanios, in heavenly places. Same phrase, same location. In other words, the battle takes place where we are led by the Spirit to be. That's the location of the war. If we embrace the blessings, Entois Eperanias, we need to also embrace what's also going on. And what is going on? What is the nature of this war? If this war really is part of where we are placed by God, what does it look like? The warfare we're engaged in, you see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule the world in this dark age, against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6 verse 12 in the translation of the New Testament by Tom Wright. And I think you will see just in that verse that Paul talks about authorities and powers and leaders and it isn't really clear all the time whether he's talking about earthly authorities and powers or spiritual authorities and powers. And, and the reason for that is because for Paul, for Paul's mindset, the two were inextricably linked. Now, in Paul's context, he would have been thinking about the Roman Empire. Empire is a powerful force. He would undoubtedly, in the context of this letter, have been thinking about the cult of Artemis in, in Ephesus. 
but that maybe doesn't help us very much. What would it look like for us? What does it look like in our experience? Well, let's just think about the institutions, the organisations that seem to have a culture, an atmosphere that seemingly goes beyond the individuals actually involved in those institutions. Indeed, that atmosphere seems to shape the individuals, people who, let's just think about politics, that go into the realm of politics, go into a particular political party of whatever shade, with the very best of intentions, and somehow along the way, even though their intention is to shape the institution positively, they get shaped negatively by the organisation. It's not just politics. Individ institutional sexism, institutional racism, institutional injustice, in so many different ways. We see it in mob hysteria stirred up against people groups. I don't just mean mobs on the street, I mean the mobs of social media and other media. Somehow, powers and authorities in this world do seem to have a link with spiritual forces that would align themselves against the kingdom of God. Not, not always, but we do see it. And against all of these, Paul says we are called to take, to make a stand. Not in our own strength, but with all of the power that we've heard about earlier on in the letter. In verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power. In chapter 1, He's talked about, uh, let's misread it, the ex let me read it, the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's the same phrase. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ. So in chapter one, we've talked about how God's power is at work in us. And it's the same power that worked in Jesus and, and raised him from the dead. And it's that power that we now used to take our stand. So specifically, what does that look like? How, does, how do we use that power? What are our weapons? And in um, Paul's terms, as we're just about to see, what is the armour? What are the weapons of this war? that we use in the spirit, in the power of God. Are they particular sorts of gatherings, all night prayer meetings, 
particular types of worship, songs in the key of E minor. All of these things might do play their part, but they're not all that Paul is talking about here. They're perfectly valid, but they're limited expressions of the war. I think, and particularly in the context of this letter, it makes much more sense to see that Paul must be talking about our everyday life in the spirit. So in that context, what do these weapons, what does the armour look like? Well, first of all, he starts by talking about the belt of truth. It is probable, even though there are allusions to the um, armour of the Messiah portrayed in the Old Testament, it is probable that Paul has in mind um, Roman armour here. As has been pointed out, he was under some kind of arrest when this um, letter was written. He may even have had a visual aid of a Roman soldier guarding him. Um, as he uh, wrote this letter. He starts with the belt of truth and for the Roman armour, the belt is what holds everything else together. Now it's been said that we live in a post-truth society, a post-truth world. Fake news, deep fake videos, heavily politicised news channels. I grew up thinking the news was the truth. I now realise it's just a view on the truth and sometimes it's a very heavily slanted view on the truth depending on where that news is coming from. Half-truths in business, justifiable white lies. Hmm. What ultimately lies behind all of this if it isn't the being that Jesus described when he was calling out religious hypocrisy, religious hypocrites in John 8. He said this, verse 44, you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's where non-truth comes from. When we take a stand for truth in every way, in every situation, it might not seem significant. But it is. Paul, in the letter here, talks about the fact that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Old-fashioned word, they're not easily comprehensible in an earthly way. But they do have spiritual significance. Truth represents the one who said, I am the truth. And it flows from the one that Jesus described as the spirit of truth, who would lead us into all truth, the Holy Spirit. Truth is, is central to living by the spirit. 
because it flows from who the Spirit is. It's powerful, it's important, and as I said, like the belt in Roman armoury, it holds everything else together. Next, justice as your breastplate. The breastplate protects the heart. What causes our hearts to break on so many occasions, if not injustice? Injustice to ourselves or injustice that we see out in the world, in society. For example, in the distribution of wealth and food and resources internationally and nationally. Injustice in relationships, in power structures and in power structures in relationships. Things that the Apostle Paul has just been addressing in chapter 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6 that we heard so brilliantly from Paul last week. Against all those in the power of the Spirit, we take a stand for justice. And that might mean some very practical things. For shoes on our feet, ready for battle, take the good news of peace. Now I'm giving this talk <clears throat> the Advent season, leading up to Christmas just around the corner. The angels in the familiar nativity story proclaimed that this newborn Messiah brought peace to the earth. But the reality is that peace is contested. It's contested on the macro scale of international conflict and sitting here right now, there are any number of conflicts going on around the world. Some taking very big headlines, some have fallen off most of our news channels, but they still exist. They're still going on. People are still suffering. There is still a lack of peace for so many people in this world. And interestingly, those conflicts so often seem to lock in nations and parties in a way that's in spite of their best interests. Significant, I think. But also peace is contested in the noise and struggle of the everyday existence for so many, and maybe even for you. In that context, we do have good news to share of the peace of Jesus that was proclaimed by the angels. The shield of faith. Now again, just on the assumption we're talking about Roman armour here, the legionnaire's shield was a very, very effective part of the awesome fighting force that was the Roman army. It was designed so that two-thirds of the shield protected the person carrying it, but one-third was designed to overlap and protect part of the body of the person next to you. 
and say you had the two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds, one-third, everyone was protected if they stayed together, if they marched as one, and they did, and it was a very effective fighting force. What does that say to us? Well, yes, our personal faith, our faith in Jesus is important, but in this life, it is easy to lose faith, isn't it? I do. I find that easy. And in those times, I am so grateful for faithful and faith-filled friends whose shields help to protect me, to cover me. And I hope that there are times when I do the same for them. It is what Jill spoke about so well a couple of weeks ago. And again, Paul spoke about last week. In the kingdom of God, in the church, relationships are not a nice added extra. They are central to what we are about. They are central to life in the spirit and they are central to this battle. The helmet of salvation. If the breastplate protects the heart, the helmet clearly protects the head. And our mind is often under attack, is it not? Things just not making sense, everything being crazy, stress. In those times, can we allow the Holy Spirit to bring us assurance and peace in our rescue in Jesus, our ultimate rescue, our ultimate salvation, our ultimate life in him, and our present life in him, his presence with us. And finally, the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, the short stabbing sword of the legionnaire. It was used in close combat. When the enemy is close, we use the sword which the spirit provides. The word or words we are given. And yeah, that might well be words of scripture, or it might be other inspiration, or prophetic words, tailored specifically to our situation. And those words will speak out with truth and justice and peace and faith and salvation, rescue. I said finally, but actually there is one more important thing mentioned at the end of this list. It's not referred to as a piece of armour, but it's all part of the fight. <clears throat> Chapter 6, verse 18. Pray on every occasion in the Spirit with every type of prayer and intercession. I, I love the all-encompassing nature of that phrase, every type of prayer and intercession. 
in this conflict in our lives, let's continue to be prayerful people with all types of prayers. Long prayers, short prayers, early morning Zoom prayers, late night solitary sobbing prayers, going for a walk in the woods prayers, switching off the radio and praying in the car prayers, all types of prayers, every type of prayer and intercession, they all count and they're all important. So let's go forward, assured of all that God has done for us in Jesus that we've been reminded of so wonderfully in this letter. Let's pursue a walk, as Nigel reminded us, a walk that celebrates a new perspective and understanding of his love and grace. Let's work out and walk that out in all types of relationships. And let's take a stand in God's power for truth and justice and peace and faith and salvation wherever and whenever we can. And my final question is really, what will that look like? in the next 12 months as we stand you know, at the turn of the year. How will we be called to take up the fight in 2024? I don't know, but let's be ready. Where and how will we take a stand in the power of God living in the Spirit? Amen. <laughs>